One of those passages today in the Bible uh, that tells us to do something uh, that we universally disobey. Did you hear that? <laughs> we we universally disobey this text because uh, uh, just if, if if you're a human being, you cannot help but uh, be uh, a little focused on yourself, a lot focused on yourself, and uh, even if, as this text tells us, to practice humility. Our practice of humility um, sometimes is often in front of others. C.S. Lewis said that um, the first step to humility is to admit that you're not. <laughs> so, um, which, which seems pretty wise to me. And so, uh, in light of that, I think um, we'll pray and ask God as we consider humility and cons- consider Jesus Christ, that he would do that work in us. So, Let me pray before I read the text. Father, we come to you uh, confessing uh, the fact that um, we, we, uh, though Jesus, you humbled yourself. And we are so grateful that you did, uh, that our bent, our nature left to ourselves would never be to humble ourselves, to consider others as more significant than we are. And so would you help us be our helper Open our eyes, teach us, uh, be gracious to us, uh, merciful, uh, and by your spirit, would you give us the energy uh, to look more and more like Jesus Christ? We ask this in his name, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, So Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4, this is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it uh, as such this morning. So do nothing from a selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. <clears throat> so I don't know if you uh, follow like the Christian world, you know, things that are happening out uh, in the, the church at large and that sort of thing. There's a church uh, uh, that's, uh, I guess it's, I don't know, a couple of decades old now. They have uh, churches uh, all over the world called Hillsong. I don't know if you're familiar with that. They're big in music, that kind of stuff. We, had, we probably even sung some of their songs. Well, recently, the pastor of the, uh, uh, the uh, Hillsong congregation in New York uh, had a moral failing. And, you know, I'm always hesitant to talk about these things um, in church because uh, uh, God bless those people. God uses them. God used this man. I mean, after all, he's... Uh, He's Justin Bieber's pastor. And, you know, if you know anything about Justin Bieber at all, uh, he's actually been helped by this church, I think. I think. I don't, I don't really follow him, but people who do tell me that. So, um, uh, so I think there's, there's something to that. I read an article this week uh, by a, a, an atheist about uh, this situation. And what he said, I think, was very applicable, not just to what the situation was in Hillsong, but the situation for us as well. And that basically what he said is that uh, many churches in America today, uh, because they are fearful and because they uh, are so uh, concerned about relevance, that they're working really hard to look like the world. Really hard. 
Um, and what he said was what it looked like to him was even though he thought that the, this church had done a lot of good things and done uh, some great things, that one of the reasons why he felt unmoved by their ministry was not so much the moral failing, but the fact that what they were doing and what they looked like was you can be like the world in every way that makes you comfortable and feel good with a twist of Christianity, right? A twist, like a cocktail, right? Uh, Just a a twist of Christianity. Um, And he said, so why would I consider, he said, it seems like the church is trying harder to be like me, an atheist, and there's nothing particular about the church, and it's looking just like me with a twist of Christianity that would make me, as an unbeliever, uncomfortable. Now, you know, the movement among most churches, evangelical churches in America today, is whatever you do, don't make anybody uncomfortable. When in fact, this guy thinks, you know, if the gospel's true, if there's anything about Jesus that's true, then it should make me uncomfortable. And make me uncomfortable in a way that I see the work of the church and I see the people of God as being and doing something that challenges me and makes me uncomfortable and therefore makes me consider the claims of Christ in a way that I wouldn't otherwise. I found that very profound. That's the other thing. People have been saying to me so much lately that I say profound too much in my sermons. So please forgive me for that. So uh, maybe not profound. I just find that interesting. Why would someone look at the church, look at the people of God, and consider what we believe, who we worship, if in some way there's not something about us that's distinctive. And not just distinctive in the sense that we have a set of morals or a set of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, that we do, that God, God is gracious in giving us what a good life looks like in his word but that the dynamic of our lives and the dynamic of our ministry would be so other than what happens in the world that it would cause people to be uncomfortable because they would look at Christians and look at the church and say, look at what they're doing. Look at how they love. How do I love? That challenges me, right? And so what Paul is getting at in this text today is something dynamic like that, that he wants to see that would be true in the Philippian church. And and he's doing it to a church, remember, that is uh, dealing with disagreements, dealing with challenges of unity, dealing with challenges of what is, is joining them together. And so rather than saying what I'm calling you to is greater doctrinal fidelity, which apparently was not the issue. Apparently doctrinal fidelity was not what was causing the disagreement. It was something else. His, his remedy for church disunity is humility. 
is the consideration of others as more significant than we are, right? Put, put my, my notes up there, Nate or Scott, one, whoever, whoever's doing it, right? And, and the problem with this is, and the thing that makes this so challenging for us, I think it would have made it challenging for the church at Philippi, but <clears throat> even more so for us, is that we live in a world and, and so much of our time and energy in the world in which we live is driven not so much by, you know, trying to be humble or anything like that, but by comparison. We spend a lot of our time comparing ourselves to other people, don't we? And in fact, uh, we carry around in our brains a, a, a pecking order, right, of, of who's, who the cool kids are and who the less cool kids are, who, who the important people are, who the less important people are, who the influential people are and the not influential people are. And, and, and what, what Paul is getting at is, you know, I'm going to simplify all of this for you just to say this. Do you see that person over there? I don't care who they are. Do you see that brother or sister there in worship? I don't care who they are. I don't care how they're dressed, better than you, less than you. I don't care what their Instagram posts look like. They take better vacations than you, lesser vacations than you. Your kids are better behaved than their kids are. Your kids do better in school than their kids do. Whatever your comparison is, that is always going to be at war with what the Scripture says our affect and our approach is to be towards other brothers and sisters. Comparison, even when we look at someone and we think uh, they're better than us, we are using them <laughs> to kind of, you know, as a as a marker about where we place ourselves and the hierarchy that we that we we in the way in which we think about the world. So what Paul is getting at is he's saying, look, you know, the way we're going to we cut across this is is to come at this from the standpoint of humility. And the way you get to humility is by looking at Jesus Christ, by considering him and by considering how that works itself out uh, in our lives. Right. So if comparison is deadly to humility, uh, and, 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 and if, that's, if that's true, then we're never going to find ourselves in a situation where we're actually able to put the uh, needs, desires of others ahead of our own, right? Jesus, what Paul is getting at here is simply what Jesus said. And he said, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like that is love your neighbor as yourself. All Paul is saying here is, is in the church, if the gospel is true, if Jesus Christ actually lived, died and rose again for us, then then what should happen as a result of that in our lives and our interactions with one another is as people look at us, that they will see that we put other people before ourselves, that we put other people's kids before our kids. That we put other people's needs and desires before our own. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no place for personal property. That doesn't mean that there's no place for caring and providing for our families. But, but the fact is, as someone who belongs to Jesus Christ, what, what happens to me is I begin to look like him. And the very heart of Jesus Christ was service, right? The very heart of who Jesus was, was to put others before himself, right? 
So the, the, the thing is, what we try to do when we come at this and we hear a sermon like this is we think, oh, yeah, that is right. I am so self-centered. I am, I am so into myself. I am so comparison, comparing myself to other people all the time, right? But the point is not to get out there and, and try to make people something. The point is that you just simply count others to be, right? The, the focus is not on any other skill or trait that they may have or not have. That's the way we tend to think about people. The way we think about sig- the people who are significant is because they have money, they have gifts, or they don't have money, they don't have gifts. And that's, that's what makes them significant. No, the, the fact is they just are significant. They're created in the image of God. They are people who Jesus loves. And so their, their significance is, 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 is already established in that with regardless of what kind of significance you or I might give to somebody. So the focus is, will you count them as worthy of your help and encouragement? Not are they worthy, but will you count them as worthy? Because they already are worthy. That's the point, right? And so when Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, that word there for interests, and he's going to refer to this word several more times in this chapter, in chapter two, the word interest is a very general word. In Greek, it's open-ended. So it's all that is specified is, you know, look not just to your own, whatever it is, or the others, whatever it is. So it could be, let each of you look not only to your own financial affairs or to your own property or, or your own family or your own health or your own reputation or your own education or your own success or your own happiness. Just don't think about that. Just don't, not just the desires about that. Just don't dream about that. Just don't work toward that. But look to the financial affairs and property and family and health and reputation and education and success and happiness of others. And, and, you know, at this time, if I'm sitting here on church on Sunday morning, the third Sunday in Advent, and I'm hearing this, I'm like, my eyes are rolling back in my head. And I'm like, you know what? If I'm honest about that, I'm really not even that interested in that. Or if you're like me, I read this and I think, wow, the Bible really says that. God must really be serious about that. So how can I make my peace with this? Oh, I know how. By taking care of myself, I'm actually caring for you. (laughs) Right? And there's some logic to that. Otherwise, I wouldn't convince myself of that. That is, if I'm taking care of myself, then you don't have to take care of me. So good pressure's off, right? And there's some truth to that. And the, and the scriptures do say that uh, that it is important for us to care for ourselves and to care for our own, right? So that we're not a burden uh, upon uh, someone else. But the fact is, this is an ethic that goes beyond that. And the ethic that goes beyond this is, is that we are, our, our affect, our approach, our life is open out to the possibility that as I come into contact with other people, that I put their needs and desires ahead of my own. And I find that I, this is so hard for me. I mean, when, you know, especially at this time of year is, you know, you, having a, a wife who's a teacher, you get all kinds of goodies that come to your house. Really good goodies. You know, I love those bins, those metal bins with the little Christmas stuff on them, because there's always something in there that's like, you know, thank you, Miss Shelby. Uh, we love you so much, and here's a tin full of bourbon balls. Or we love you, Miss Shelby. 
you're so awesome. Here's a here's a tin of, you know, brownies or cookies or, you know, thankfully nobody gives us apples or oranges in those tins. Right. So it's just it's just really great. So, you know, you see that tin on the in the counter, you come home, you, you know, before dinner, you get your appetizer out of there, your chocolate chip cookie. And then, you know, you as I'm driving home after a, a hard day of work, I, I, I think, wow, you know, it's going to be good to get in that kitchen and make me a cup of tea and eat one of those cookies in that bin. And you open it up and there's no cookies in the bin. And so when that happens to to me, what I think is, you know, uh, I'm going to make sure I get the last cookie in every bin that comes in this house from now on, right? Whether whether anybody else gets in here or not, I'm getting the last one. That's, you know, I'm not going to put their needs before mine because they haven't put my needs before theirs because they took the last cookie and it's not in there, right? So so the fact is, that's a really silly kind of kind of example, but but that we default to that kind of viewpoint about the world all the time. And the reason why we do that is because the incarnation, which is what Paul is going to uh, talk about throughout the rest of this chapter, has not stunned us. Humility will not come my way. Putting the interests of others will not come my way unless I am first stunned by the fact that the king of glory gave it up, took on flesh and all of the the, 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 the finiteness and the brokenness and even of death itself so that I could be raised. That's the whole point of what of what of what uh, Paul is, is getting at in this text. And what he's going to do in the rest of this chapter is he's going to give us four examples of, of, of people in the flesh who've done this. Right. First, he goes to Jesus because he goes he's going to go on to say, have this mind among yourselves. That's the mind of verse four, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count. Notice the word count. Count others as more important than yourself. He did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, literally emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's what it means to look to the interests of others is, is, is to serve them. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. That is, he laid down all his legitimate entitlements becoming, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's just a stunning thing for us to think of right now, that, 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 that God would love those in rebellion against him so much that he would do that. Then, then Paul himself is even going to be as, as an example, because he says, even as he is being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. In other words, Paul recognizes that what his life is, even as he is there in, in prison, is that his life is being poured out as an offering for the sake of the church in Philippi. And then there's Timothy. He goes on this in chapter two to say, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you to you soon so that I, too, may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Literally the same word that is used here before your interests, your things, for they all seek their own interests. Exact wording again from verse four, not those of Jesus Christ. But, you know, Timothy's proven worth. How is a son with a father? He has served with me in the gospel. And then Epaphroditus, the last one, 
He's, and this was the one that just strikes home the most to me in, in, in some ways, because it's, it's at least practically how I think of myself. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister, minister to my need. In other words, Epaphroditus had come from Philippi with, with an offering for Paul. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, this this is, this is interesting, right? Notice how amazingly their interest is dominant. He's not distressed that he was ill, which I would be. Especially, yeah, you know, it's distressing to be sick, right? What's distressing him? He's distressed that they had, uh, 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 nor is he distressed that they had not heard that he was ill. Like most of us want others to know if we're sick. Instead, he was distressed because they heard he was ill. Would they be too worried? Would they be fearful that he might die? Right there, even even as he's recognizing his own weakness and the fact that he's sick, maybe even sick unto death. His concern is not, oh, I'm about to die. His concern is, oh, the, the people in Philippi will be worried about me because they heard I was sick. Right. He goes on to say, indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So receive him. In the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So so what what Paul's doing here is he recognizes that this claim of the gospel, this work, this being stunned by the incarnation and and suddenly my life is turned upside down so that you become more important. Your interests become more important that that my life and the life of the church now is marked by sacrifice and love in ways that we can't even begin to fathom as God does that. As he as he as he works that in our lives, he he's he's calling on us to see just how dynamic, how how powerful it is that Jesus has done this, and this reorients everything about us. Because Jesus has loved me so well, because He has emptied Himself, it frees me to empty myself, and that's so hard. It's so hard. Years ago. Um, we had uh, John Hall, uh, uh, who was then pastor of Trinity Presbyterian in Charlottesville, speaking at a conference here. I think it was one of our anniversary conferences. And he was talking about our uh, the, the gospel and the sacrifice that uh, of Christ and how that calls for sacrifice from us. And he used as an example, uh, these guys are running a race and one guy uh, gets injured. Uh, and the guy who's leading the race stops and picks that guy up. And carries him across the line and he loses the race. Now I had a son, I have a son, who at that time was a, a good runner, uh, actually a college scholarship runner. And I thought, I don't want him to hear that. <laughs> so we went home that night and I said to him, hey, listen, you know that example that John used in his sermon? Let me, let me interpret that for you. When you're leading the race and you think someone's hurt behind you, go ahead and finish the race, win the race, and then you can go back and help them across the finish line. That seems reasonable, right? <laughs> that, 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 doesn't that kind of line up with what, what Paul's saying here about considering don't, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit? <laughs> Anyway, so so the point is the 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 the, the fact is is as we is as 
Paul writes this thus. He's recognizing that a church that is struggling with disagreements, he's recognizing that a church is struggling in this way, that there is something that, that what is going to challenge them and what is going to reorient them is the gospel. And the gospel is sacrifice. The gospel is the recognition that uh, uh, the deserving gives up what they deserve for the undeserving so that the undeserving would get what the deserving deserves. When the world sees that, it will make them uncomfortable. And it will make them uncomfortable in a way because they will see how powerful it is that the love of Jesus Christ moves his people to love in that way. It's a, it's a great thing for us today to be able to come to the Lord's table because what we recognize when we come to the Lord's table and what the scriptures tell us is, is that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And by proclaiming the Lord's death, what we are recognizing and what we are, are calling on the world to see and calling on ourselves to see is that at the heart of uh, our faith at the heart of our belief is the fact that someone loved us enough to give up what they had so that we would get, get what we could never earn for ourselves. It's scandalous. It's beautiful. And it's powerful. And so as we proclaim the Lord's death, as we do that work here and now, one of the things that, that happens is the Spirit begins to move us and begins to reorient us towards others in such a way that we see them as more important than ourselves. Friends, brothers and sisters, let's uh, say these words of institution uh, as they're found in 1 Timothy first Cor- and in 1 Corinthians. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. The gifts of God for the people of God. Let's uh, confess our sins together. Good and gracious Father, we lay our sins before you, confessing that we have not lived in light of your commandments and promises, you purchased us to be a people who are open hearted, God trusting, neighbor loving, risk taking, life giving. Forgive us for our sins against you and our neighbor. We have been tight fisted, God doubting, neighbor scorning, risk avoiding, life taking. Because God incarnate humbled himself, was born, lived, died, rose again, ascended, and will come again. We confess our sins with the great confidence that you forgive, redeem, and renew us in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.
Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. The angel said, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the scriptures tell 